As a little note before the episode, I'd like to say that unfortunately the recording for this one did not assume a very pristine form. Thus the audio quality of the interview is not the greatest. But we felt that we should publish the episode nevertheless, as the content of the interview remains very interesting. That being said, without further ado, let's get to the episode. Welcome, everybody, to the 22nd episode of Quarantined Market Podcast, where some academics get together in the present historical moment and discuss particular keywords and how they relate to our time. Today, we're very honored to have Kate Soper as a guest with us, and the topic for today is sustainability. Now, Alan, would you like to give Kate a proper introduction? I'd be delighted to. Kate Soper is a philosopher. Uh, currently a visiting professor at the University of Brighton and emeritus at London Metropolitan University. She is the author of several uh, well-known books, perhaps most notably To Relish the Sublime, that she wrote with Martin Ryle, as well as other books such as uh, Humanism and Anti-Humanism, What is Nature? Um, and in 2008, she co-edited with Frank Trentman the collection Citizenship and Consumption. Uh, more recently, she's been working on a book addressing society, nature, and consumption, which is going to be forthcoming with Verso. So, hello, Kate. We're delighted to have you with us. Hello. I'm very pleased to be here. So, Kate, the key term that we're going to address today is sustainability. What, in your view, is the best way to approach the issue of sustainability? Well, it's not my favourite term, I have to say. I mean, partly I think it's an awkward word, um, but it's also quite problematic conceptually. And I think it's been rejected by quite a number of people because it's sort of vague, it lends itself to a sort of greenwash usage, um, all the talk about sustainable developments and so on. But in a general sense, I mean, I think we have to use it, and I think we can agree that it refers us to a project to so use resources as to allow for an indefinitely enduring and universally accessible welfare. In other words, to give everyone some kind of a, a decent life. That still, of course, is a definition that leaves many questions begging about the nature of welfare, who is to pronounce on that, what we mean by prosperity and the good life and so on. And I think when we're talking about sustainability, we do need to keep in the background that these these are problematic issues around the definition of needs and well-being. We also, I would want to argue, getting on more directly onto my own position here, need to recognise, I think, that implicit in any project to provide a universally satisfying and enduringly sustainable lifestyle, we have to commit to a much greater degree of equality, both nationally and globally. I don't think there is any truly sustainable uh, future for us without uh, the correction of these, you know, huge disparities of wealth between within nations and between them. And that, in turn, means, in my view, that we have to. Uh, commit to a radically revised economic order. One that's much less profit-oriented, 
uh, and market-driven, and which um, has begun to accept the need to make the transition to a post-growth order and to cease to give priority to GDP as the measurement of well-being, of uh, prosperity. I'm not an economist, so I don't want to go into the, the details on a sort of no-growth economy. My contribution, as I see it, is to offer some reflections on the cultural revolution in thinking about consumption and prosperity that will need to gain traction in more affluent societies as a first stage in creating more of an electoral mandate for a green renaissance and a less growth-driven economic order. And I think, in fact, that now there's more support for that kind of outlook and that a lot of environmentalists would agree uh, both on the need for greater equality and on the need for a new economic order. What I think is somewhat more distinctive to my own position is that what I call its alternative hedonism. In other words, its resistance to viewing the needed changes in consumption as a form of sacrifice and loss of pleasure. I want to present them on the contrary as offering an opportunity to advance beyond a way of living that's not just environmentally disastrous, but also in many ways unpleasurable and self-denying. It's too restrictively and puritanically fixated on work and money-making at the expense of the enjoyment that comes with having more time, doing more things for oneself, travelling more slowly, and consuming less stuff. And what's been interesting in a way about the uh, coronavirus crisis, which of course has been horrible in all sorts of ways, and very unwelcome um, emergence, but one thing that has been noted is the uh, the way it's exposed some of the ways in which we could uh, live better if we adopted a slower paced way of doing things. It's allowed people, it's given a sort of window onto um, the pleasures of living in a less work-driven, acquisitive kind of way. And many people seem to have remarked on that on the, their enjoyment of less car-congested streets, their ability to take to the bike and walk without the pressure of traffic, the, you know, the plainless skies, as it were, and the new blue of the sky that's uh, freed from that, um, that constant noise and um, trails of um, aeroplane so there is a way in which you know the virus has opened up new thinking about alternative ways of living, and I think it's also created new forms of you know people have come back to thinking of themselves more as parts of a community and as citizens, and not just as consumers. And all that actually sort of fits with my own argument around alternative humanism in the sense that I've always argued that this is rooted in already existing feelings of ambivalence about uh, consumer culture and consumerist um, ways of living. Uh, so that I kind of 
try to legitimate some of the claims I'm making about alternative hedonism by reference to um, already existing feelings of disaffection with the so-called good life, the way that people are objecting to the the kinds of uh, stress and uh, time scarcity and pollution and loss of community and so on that has been caused by it. So it, it, there's a sort of interesting uh, coming together, really, of some of my arguments around alternative hedonism and the uh, ways that people have opened up thinking and experiencing new ways of of living thanks to, as a, as a result of the, the lockdown experience. I mean, I'm not saying that's a, a positive experience in any sense at all, but, you know, there are aspects of it which could be combined into an alternative way of living as long, alongside more convivial, uh, uh, you know, we could have sport and, and pub going and conviviality, but also we could seek to travel in a slow way, uh, be less uh, caught up in the work of Sensaro. Before we get to the coronavirus, uh, we've been going through several years of austerity, which we could uh, describe as an involuntary downsizing that's happened to people. Um, and one interesting aspect of that is that there has been a huge reduction in the amount of consumption that people are doing in many countries, but it hasn't seemed to have had much positive impact on ecology. And secondly, um, on that issue, isn't there a problem that dispossession becomes ideologically recreated as some sort of benefit or as some sort of possibility for spiritual rejuvenation, um, where in point of fact, there's a class politics going on in which people are experiencing a reduction of their material circumstances? Well, I mean, I think this brings us back to the issue of inequality and the need to overcome inequalities, and, and, and particularly in respect of the points you're making, I think, within the more affluent nations themselves. I don't think that we can expect people who are living very near the breadline in our own society to actually have very much support for uh, alternative forms of consumption that they see as possibly, you know, adopted primarily by middle-class people with the money to, to, to spend on buying more ethical and uh, environmentally friendly goods. They also, of course, are aware, I think, people in the most deprived people, that they're living in areas which are closer to airports, more polluted usually, um, and that these have also, I think, come to the fore. In the, the, these kinds of inequalities have come to the fore during the coronavirus um, crisis. So I think the first, I mean, my argument for alternative hedonism is an appeal actually to the already quite well off to rethink their lifestyle in the name of the need to address climate change and to act as a leverage on uh, for the um, for the creation of a of a new economic order, both nationally and on a wider scale, so that it's not directly addressed to uh, to the more deprived people in society. Who I think the first step in this process will be to adjust those inequalities, and that I, I think those who are arguing in the 
in the European Parliament, for example, recently, there's a group who argued for a, a transition to a low-growth, no-growth economy. And they, you know, they make the point, you can't do it. You can't appeal to people who are, who are on the breadline, as it were, uh, to, to actually be supportive of those kinds of things. And their livelihood is often caused up in, in environmentally unfriendly. Uh, industries of various kinds and so on. So we need to, we need in that sense to address those problems at the, you know, as, as, a, as a first stage to, to, to thinking about a more general and universal movement towards an alternative humanist way of living. On a general level, uh, and you have indeed written about this uh, tension, which would be one between consumption and citizenship. This is an, of course, uh, ongoing conceptual problem. To what extent can we be citizens and what extent can we be consumers? Cultural social critics such as Baudrillard, of course, would have it that there is no citizenship left anymore and that consumption has encroached all ideas of some other form of citizenship than the production of science through consumption. How would you see this tension today? I think it's an interesting and important question. What I argue on various occasions is the need for a political formation, a party or alliance of parties to adopt a political program for a green renaissance and as part of that I think they would need to pursue quite some quite unprecedented cultural initiatives including public conversation on what a, a sort of public consultation process with the aim of replacing what I call a means contesting by an ends debating politics. In other words, to try to bring to a close an era in which the main parties, this is particularly true of British politics, but also elsewhere, have essentially contested the best ways of delivering a largely agreed set of ends, economic growth, universal employment, higher wages, improved living standards as defined as in consumer culture and so on. Um, and instead of that, to inaugurate a politics of prosperity more suited to our times, one in which ends would be considered in the light of the ecological crisis, disaffection with consumerism and new thinking on global solidarity, welfare, pleasure and the good life. And in other words, we, we have never really had a politics that addresses the question of what, what is the purpose of all this wealth production? Why all this stuff? particularly in an era when, you know, we are facing ecological degradation on an unprecedented scale. And I think in, to come on to the issue of citizenship and consumption here, I mean, I think in promoting that kind of politics of endless conversation, any new party formation could at the same time, I think it would need, you know, to dissipate one of the more insidious uh, legacies of the Thatcherite period in British politics, namely the creation of that sort of analytic divide between consumption and citizenship, where the, the public is treated primarily as a set of consumers and not just as commodities in the shopping malls, uh, but also as health and welfare benefits and public services more generally. And that has become a very entrenched way of thinking across the divide between Tories and New Labour, certainly. For several decades, both Tory and New Labour governments here 
had subjected people to a series of measures designed to persuade them that as consumers they were also enjoying citizenly rights in the form of commercial warranties and the like, and that their freedoms and concerns as citizens are best accommodated to an exercise of consumer choice. We need to kind of reverse that sort of position, I think. I would argue that governments now need to acknowledge much more than they do the everyday acts of consumption and of non-consumption, because non-consumption is very important, however business unfriendly. But these have a political dimension, and that the consumer's choice can be the expression of uh, his identity as a citizen. I think we need, you know, an alternative hedonist understanding of the consumer as a more sophisticated, reflexive, relatively autonomous agent than is often allowed. And this would be an agent whose self-interested needs can also come to encompass collective goods. And I think that, you know, that pressure to open up a conversation and the recognition around um, a new understanding of citizenship is very important, as you're suggesting, to creating the pressure for more sustainable ways of living. And again, you know, one can say that the, the virus has actually issued in some civically oriented forms of thinking. People have, you know, appreciated in a way that they've come to sort of sense themselves as citizens in a way that it feels as if they are actually quite welcoming. And I mean, even it's interesting that even Boris Johnson, you may recall, had to acknowledge in the heat of the moment, as it were, of the crisis, that there was such a, a thing in society. So, I mean, reversing that factor. So, I mean, I don't, you know, I'm not saying we're there at the moment, but, it's, but I think, you know, this needs to be opened up. And we need to acknowledge that, that there are a growing number of so-called consumers who are not simply driven by a narrow sense of self-interest, but are concerned about the impact of their own consumption on the wider community and on planetary resources. The term consumption is, or, or even consumer, is very much an ideologically saturated term, and that it's come to be understood as a sort of composite of neoliberal values. Um, so it's very interesting to hear that you, you want us to think about it differently, to have an entirely alternative framing of what it could be to, to, to occupy this consumer subjectivity. But why do you think historically we've arrived at this point where the term consumer has become such a, an ideologically intense holder? I mean, I suppose the, the most obvious, that's not the most interesting thing to say, but, but, the, but the most obvious thing aspect of this would seem to be that it, it very much suits the, the drive and dynamic of a capitalist you know, uh, economy to actually focus on the consumer and consumer needs at the expense of recognising a more citizenly and other-oriented and altruistic kind of dimension to itself. And in that very process, of course, of focusing on the consumer, you can also focus on individuals. And individuals are important to the market in the sense that one of the moves of the market, particularly from the 40s, near 40s period onwards, has been to get us to consume in much more individualised ways. 
so you know selective goods are not given the kind of priority that they were in earlier cultures and you know more money is made if you're selling into isolated um, households so I think you know individuation goes together with the emergence of the kind of consumer culture which has satisfied which has served the interests of the capitalist economy very well what what do you mean when you say that we should denaturalize consumption oh well I mean this is really part of my argument against some sections of the left, particularly, I think, the Marxist left, which have done a good job on denaturalizing the capitalist production, the, 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 the economy uh, at the level of its productivity and its mode of production. But I've been critical of um, historical materialism, even those who have contributed most um, you know, recently, people like um, Andrew's mom to to rethinking, you know, uh, the to to de to showing that there is nothing natural about capitalism that it's one of many modes of production that we could could have emerged. It's, it's not fixed. It's not like a law of nature. But much less, I think, has been done to challenge the supposed inevitability. In other words, naturality of the consumer culture that has been generated by capitalism and the market economy. That's essentially what I mean, that, that we have come to accept a, a sort of ideological position. This is the good life. This is the only way in which we could actually be consuming in an, in an advanced manner. And I want us to begin to try to imagine uh, gratifications that could have proceeded along other lines. But I think it's important as we challenge and debunk the idea that there's, there can't be any other economy except that of the neoliberal market, we also need to challenge the idea that there can't be any other consumer consumption except that which goes along with that market. I mean, in, even on the left, there is still, in my opinion, too much acceptance of the, even those who are challenging capitalism as a, an economic system are still not really critical enough of consumption. Uh, you know, I'm thinking here, for example, of some of the thinking around luxury communism, uh, where the idea is that, you know, we need to, in some sense, salvage the existing mode of consumption, but we'll do it by recourse to technologies of various kinds, automation to relieve us of work and release of time and so on. But the the actual picture they hold out of consumption, the model of consumption they're using seems to me is still quite conventional. But not necessarily you know, so the, that would be an example even of the way in which the left it seems to me, and the, along with quite a lot of other environmentalists, are still treating consumption of the kind that, you know, consumer types of consumption as, as necessary to the good life. And I want, I, I, when I talk about challenging the naturalization of consumption, I'm talking about challenging that idea. Now, you mentioned Andreas Malm there, and I'm also thinking of Jason Moore, yes. would agree on this term of capitalocene as opposed to the anthropocene. And in both of their writings, I think they emphasize accumulation as central to the issue. 
by focusing on consumption, do you see yourself as intervening into those type of issues? Could you be charged with the claim that you're neglecting to take seriously capital's own logic of accumulation by focusing on consumption? I don't think so, really. I mean, I want to come back to the point I'm making about my argument contributing to a cultural revolution in thinking about the nature of the good life and about the nature of prosperity, rather than directly uh, offering an argument on economics. And I, what I see as an essential first step in building a mandate for an alternative economic system which would not be growth-oriented, but we need to think in terms of the transition to a non-growth economy. And as a first step to that, I think we have to build a different hegemonic kind of project uh, around the understanding of prosperity, which does not, you know, does not take the model of prosperity from the existing developed nations necessarily. I think we need generally to challenge the model that's held out of the good life and prosperity by, you know, the, the, the developed cultures and to begin to rethink that. Could I make a question about uh, the sort of the ontology of the good life as it pertains to this discussion? Because uh, I'm reminded of how, for example, Deleuze and Guattari wrote that capitalism, of course, is the most cruel but the most fantastic machine ever constructed because it's able to channel desires on a global scale in a ever morphing kind of platform that always slips away from any attempt to oppose it in any fashion. Then I'm also reminded of Mar the late Mark Fisher's uh, capitalist realism where he is trying to make the claim that all these things that we see around us, such as depression, anxiety, that they are not epiphenomenal to capitalism, but essentially it's a kind of functioning motor. And also even in marketing and consumer research, we've had critical literature saying, uh, kind of pointing out that even the affluent are not very happy uh, in, in the consumer society. So there seems to be this broad scale understanding, at least academically, that consumption is not creating happiness, but still it as a system is so powerful in creating these channels, channels for desire that there's very little ways to think of uh, other systems, as you pointed out yourself. So how would you see a sort of interjection of another way of thinking about the good life that could be more captivating than the system of consumption that is present today? Well, it's a, it's a difficult, it's an interesting, uh, uh, very, very difficult question, I think. But um, I would say that there are three quite powerful drivers now, both nationally and globally, for people to reconsider their consumption. It doesn't necessarily imply that they will begin to change their desires directly. But I do think that people are now very troubled by climate change and the long-term implications of climate change. If not for themselves, certainly for their children and their children's children. Obviously, many of them are, you know, if not actually actively working with Extinction Rebellion and have been caught up in that moment of concern and reaction. So they're troubled about their consumption because of climate change. But they also, I think, are troubled by the gaping inequality globally and nationally 
I think this is a, a further sort of pressure for reconsideration of their consumption. They're more aware than I think has previously been the case of the, the forms of economic and social exploitation that are directly a consequence of very luxurious or affluent forms of consumption in the more developed societies. And now I think, as you say, they are, in a sense, motivated as well by um, the downsides of the consumerist lifestyle, which they directly experience themselves by the, you know, the air pollution, the car congestion, the stress, the loss of time to spend with family and friends and so on. So these, these factors, which have perhaps not really come together in quite such a powerful way before, I think are acting to disrupt and undermine a form of, a form of complacency and much more general acceptance of consumer culture and its attractions. I'm not denying that people remain powerfully compelled by what they find on offer in our culture and that it does open up endlessly novel channels for, you know, consuming and for self-gratification. But I do think that there are emerging sort of reactions. There's a new culture emerging, which is making it more desirable now not to constantly follow fashion in a mindless way or to constantly buy new things. I don't want to make too much of all this, but I do think that desire is now moving in uh, in other ways as well as those that have been the focus of a lot of commentary hitherto. Now, I hope this question isn't too depressing, but I note or I gather that you've finished your draft of uh, your new book uh, on society, nature and consumption just before the lockdown started. Do you think that perhaps your arguments might have been overtaken by history? And if so, what aspects of your arguments are you now thinking might need to be revised? Well, um, I mean, this obviously gave me some pause for thought because the book had just gone to press and then the coronavirus crisis emerged. So, um, but on the whole, I mean, I don't actually feel that there's much in the book that doesn't at least address a question that has now become quite a, a question that a lot of people, I think, are asking, and which is, uh, there's a lot being written about in the media and so on, namely, what comes after. And there's a lot of hope being expressed in some of these messages and media communications that what comes after will not be simply a return to the status quo ante. And many have pointed out, and I would agree with this, that it can't certainly be a a return to a status quo ante of austerity against the background of what's been happening during the crisis. So in that sense, uh, it is an opportunity, and I would like it to see it seized for beginning to build some alternative uh, economic and social order, one that would be much closer to the, um, the sort of visions I, I begin to sort of hold out in the book. But at the same time, to you know, the book remains to the issue of climate change. 
And maybe, you know, there are a lot of writers on climate change who have said, you know, pandemics are going to be part and parcel of climate change anyway. Whether that's right, I don't know. But, you know, as the warming continues, so it has been argued, we are likely to encounter more and more of these kinds of uh, problems with disease around the globe. So I think these problems are not entirely dissociated. And as I say, as I said earlier, I think, you know, one of the slightly more positive aspects of the coronavirus has been the way it has opened up a sort of window for a lot of people on on how things, you know, could be pleasanter, were they uh, allowed to exist in a less work-driven and uh, consumer-oriented kind of way. You know, I, d- I don't think I'm inclined to rewrite much of the books, even if I could, uh, in the light of the virus. Because I think people will make the connections, actually, with what it said and what is now being advocated as a, as a possible change of direction in the aftermath of the illness. And it kind of forces us to reconsider some aspects of maybe the Anthropocene or the human centricity. And you also be written about humanism and anti-humanism. So is this idea that we are now faced with a sort of different ontology, something that we are not, that reminds us how we are not in control of the planet in a similar fashion that we might have thought we were. Do you think this current crisis is enough as an event to really change the way we think about things? Because there may be some signs of that. Or is it something that humanity has to sort of, as you noted, experience again a pandemic on a level that will actually force us to change our thinking? Can this actually manifest as an event in a sort of event that becomes an event in a in a full sense? Well, it's probably it's probably too early days to pronounce on that very confidently. I mean. In my thinking on um, humanism, anti-humanism, post-humanism, in the context of writing around climate change, what I am actually, I've been actually quite concerned to challenge some of the post-humanist um, forms of thinking, those that, in a sense, want to blur or collapse the difference between ourselves and the rest of nature, particularly the rest of animate nature, emphasizing our similarities with other creatures and so on and so on. I've wanted to challenge that, not because I think in the last analysis we aren't all connected in nature, as it were. I mean, I'm not, I'm not advocating a kind of ontological separation of us from the rest of nature, but I think in a political sense it's very important that we, we remain alert to our human exceptionality and our special human responsibility towards the planet. We do have agency here in a way that no other animals do, I would argue. And we have created the mess. So we have accountability in a way that others don't. In in some ways, I think, you know, if the pandemic, it may prove that people begin to rethink themselves as not having control at all. But that for me, would not be a very positive development. I mean, it would begin this sort of more post-humanist way of thinking can lend itself to a certain sort of fatalism where, you know, we're no different. We're just caught up in, you know, 
the victims of natural forces. I think that's a very regrettable way of thinking, um, and it certainly is not going to help us to contend with the even bigger threat of climate change. So I think we need to actually, in many ways, move in a slightly other direction by asserting our our human forms of responsibility and accountability and power. I mean, the economy is not a force of nature. The way we consume is not, you know, something that we can, that we're just driven to in some fatalistic kind of work. Thank you, Kate. Uh, very interesting topics. <laughs>